Kingdom. This is Judley Wheels Rothstein, straight from the Tar Heel state of North Carolina, coming at you live for our fifth episode of the second season of Hold the Fort. Happy New Year to our Wenaki family near and far. I believe it is the year of the stag in 2022, so that's a good thing. Uh, perhaps it's the year of the beaver, or maybe the owl, or the eagle. I'm not sure, but in any case, I hope one of the four animal tribes of Wenaki brings everybody health and happiness for the next 12 months. I personally just don't have the golden touch when it comes to the four tribes, as my ignominious winless record in both Tribal War and Island Olympics NCAA shows. However, we can welcome back a man to hold the fort who surely, surely posted a better record than my 0-6. He could carry a stag on his back be a damn good beaver, show that winning was a hoot with the Owls, and be a stud athlete on the talented Eagles. It's the first camper picked in every tribal war and color war on the mainland from 1983 to 1989, and island from 1990 to 1993. My main man, who never needed HGH at HJH, it's Stuart, Stu Vitter. Doggy, doggy, doggy. Doggy, doggy, doggy. Doggy? Doggy? Doggy, doggy, doggy. Stu Dog, welcome back. Happy New Year. Tell me that your record in Tribal War and Olympic NCAAs was better than mine, and then tell us how have you been doing in this brand new year. Well, Happy New Year to you, and have enjoyed uh, listening to the podcast there um, the last few times, uh, meeting and listening to, to new people and old. Uh, the new year is fine. We are in the middle of our little eighth grade basketball season playing an abbreviated schedule. We're not leaving the parish or playing in tournaments. We're four and one right now uh, with just six more games to play. Um, I can say uh, just because I did win one, so apparently that, that trumps the 0-6, but was very fortunate on the mainland, went five and one, Woo! and was not fortunate on the island, island and went 0-4. Wow. But I can tell you that I was a, let's see, a stag, eagle, eagle, stag, eagle, and then Al, I believe, were the uh, the teams that I was on. Oh, you look so good in blue. Never a beaver, though, huh? Never, never. Uh, I, I, I guess they maybe, <laughs> according to you, maybe they didn't have the first pick. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it's just how it played out. Um, in fact, there was a rumor there towards the end when the Beavers had gone 27 straight summers without winning that maybe after you and I had already passed through there that they may have stacked the Beaver team to get them a victory when tribal war. <laughs> um, but it's great to be back. Uh, best to the Rothstein family. And speaking of camp and oddities, I believe, to my knowledge anyway, that our next guest may be the only one that I can think of that fits into this category that he does. So let's see at the end if we can confirm what that category is, Stu Dog. Our next guest on Hold the Fort was a mainstay at Wenaki in the 1990s. I had the pleasure of spending 
A few weeks working on the island with him in the famed summer of 1997. The big four, AC, Al, George, Mario, were still holding court, and it was the Wenaki of our youth. Our guest was a role model for me as he was ending his long run as a counselor, and I was just beginning mine. I have distinct memories of him standing up in the mess hall and reading hilarious top five lists as the campers and counselors exploded in laughter. When we created the IPJSN, the Island Pride Jewish Sports Network, a few summers later, one of the early elements of our variety show was a top five list. On the emotional morning when that summer ended, our guest and I were standing at the end of the mainland dock together. I had tears in my eyes saying goodbye to the seniors, and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, I think you're going to be here for a while, kid. Yet again, I felt compelled to follow his lead and make longevity at Wenaki part of my life. Finally, I reconnected with this guest a handful of years ago when he sent his own boys to Wenaki to be campers. Stu Dog, am I correct that that is the category that you are going to put this guest in? Uh, I can't think of another true counselor who ended up sending his kids there, yes. Yes. So I spent some time on the island with each of his sons and would send him video and photo updates on their athletic exploits. Beyond being amazing athletes, they were great kids. They had A-plus attitudes, great manners, tons of island pride, and were team players. As I now watch my own son grow at Wenaki, I find myself for a third time looking up to this next guest as a role model. This time, it's in order to replicate how he parents his kids so they make ourselves, and more importantly themselves, proud at the end of each day and each summer. So Stu Dog, I'll tell you this, being a role model is the closest he'll ever come to being associated with modeling because like us, he has a face for podcasting. He's the often imitated but never replicated, the mouth of the South. It's James Jimbo Cummings. JC, can we ask you for a rendition of Oogie Debanga? I'm going to dust this off. It's been a minute, but I believe we're going to go Oogie Debanga, Iggy, the Piggy Wiggy, Ethel, the Duffel Wuffle, Ooh, Wah, Ooh, Wah, Wanaki, Wanaki, Wanaki. Stuart, what do you think? I think you nailed it. Spot on. Spot on. That's it. Quarter quarter century, you still got it, JC. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. James, thank you for joining the show. Welcome to the podcast. And tell us, it's been 25 years since you last been at Wenaki. What have you been up to? How have you been? Yeah, so last summer at Wenaki was the summer of 97. Uh, the next year I went to law school in 98, graduated law school. One, you know, started my um, criminal, well, actually, I was a labor and employment attorney that I really spent the majority of my legal career as a criminal lawyer. Um, and then back in, let's see, 2009, I got into franchising, and I, um, which is something I actually first learned of when I was at Monaki as a counselor, side story. But I, I own a, uh, now I own a Great Clips franchise, which are haircut salons and, uh, my wife and I, Sydney, we've grown that. We've got 46 Great Clips salons, uh, 21 in North Carolina and 25 in Nashville, Tennessee. And so now we're in the haircut business, and that's uh, – I really I haven't practiced law in the last four or five years. But um, so in the haircut business now, didn't really see that one coming. But uh, the boys, Rob and Adam, who are obviously now Wenaki alumni, are 
uh, juniors and seniors in high school. Wow. And he's uh, healthy, happy, and doing great. Wow. That's amazing. Now, I like, you know, look, JC, I like to stay out of trouble as much as possible, but there's a better chance I would have had to retain you for legal counsel uh, than ever step foot in a, in a great clips, unfortunately, with my, uh, you know, follically challenged condition here. We, uh, as we look back on our Wenaki careers, let's just all agree that it's a good thing we didn't have cell phones when we were there <laughs> to document the felonies. That's right. That's right. So speaking about back then, uh, let's start off with a classic, uh, and I don't even know the answer to this. What is your Wenaki origin story? How did you end up at Camp Wenaki for your first summer? And when was that? Uh, so my mom's an Irish Catholic from Boston. And uh, my, my dad's a, a Southern Baptist from Mississippi. So, you know, that makes me a Methodist from North Carolina. But <laughs> my mom's family had a lake house up in New Hampshire, a little lake off 16 called Great East Lake. And I huh. spent every summer up there for two weeks. We'd go up there. And so uh, fast forward to my sophomore year at Carolina, uh, they used to do this thing called – I knew I wanted to work at a summer camp. Um, because, um, I live, I live on the Outer Banks of North Carolina and, uh, you know, I was, I knew how to sail. I li- actually lived beside a summer camp, but I wanted to go away. And so I went to camp day at UNC where there was like a you know, hundred different summer camps in the gym and they were all trying to recruit college kids. And I walk into the gym and literally like the first table that I walk up to, I meet Bart Sobel, mm. who was obviously a professor at UNC. Uh, we start talking about Camp Wenaki. We figure out that camp's about an hour from where I had grown up, you know, going up in New Hampshire. And, you know, that, that was it. Like, I was I was, I was, was in at that point. I actually went back and talked to my roommate. Uh, my, my roommate ended up going. He, he went one year. His name is Will Bacon. He spent one year on the mainland. And actually, his kids, Lucas and Jack, now go to Wenaki. So oh, that's the connection. There. That's awesome. I didn't know that was – I didn't know he worked there. That's amazing. He did, yeah. He was in cabin 15 for one summer. Wow, he's got great kids, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so, that's, uh, so we went out that summer, and um, man, you know, the first guy I met at camp, so two things about my first day at camp. First guy I met at camp was Vince McGowan. Yeah. Walked up to the car and jammed that fanny pack in my face, gave me a big old hug. <laughs> and uh, the, second, the second guy I saw at camp was actually my fraternity brother named Neil Bradham. And neither one of us knew that we were working up the camp until we saw each other that day. No way. So wow. How about that? pre-social media, like you really didn't know what everybody was doing during the summer. Right? Right. Wow. But so Bradham and I, Bradham and I were pledge brothers. And uh, we both end up at the same camp randomly. So no anyway, way. That, was, that was kind of a funny story. So what, what year was that? Which, what summer was that? That's the summer of 92. Amazing. Ninety-two, yeah, ninety-two. That's right, because Neil Neil would come over to the island Neil, and do some. Neil may have been in bunk B doing baseball on the island. He was. That is exactly right. Yeah, he was over on the island. Wow. Yep. So James, you know, the first summer comes and goes. Obviously, you know, had a great time. When did you know uh, that Wenaki was going to be a huge part of your life for the next few summers? Was it a specific moment? A feeling during that first summer, and and what are some ways, you know, that you tailored your life the next few summers to keep going back up? Um, that's a great question. You know, I probably knew I was going to go back to Wenaki during Color War, my first summer. 
Uh, I, you know, the first summer as a camp counselor is a little rough. Like, you, you, you don't really have much control over your bunk. I mean, you just, you kind of survive. I mean, and you're not much older than the kids. Like, I mean, you're growing up as much as the kids are growing up when yeah. you're a gun counselor. But it, it was during Color War. Kyle Lawrence was my leader. Oh, wow. um, and it was really, because I was a sailing counselor, it was really the first time that I, I kind of got out of the, off the waterfront and I got to coach. I got to coach yeah. the basketball, coach the football. And I fell in love with it. It was really the first time in my life that I'd ever been able to coach. And uh, I knew at that point, I was like, I'm going to come back and do this. Like, because I remember getting paid at the end of the summer. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe they're actually giving me money <laughs> to do. Like, I, it was the first time in my life where I really hadn't associated labor with with money. It was just like I was just happy to be there. I would I would have done it for nothing. And um, so for the next six summers, I really. I kind of put my life on hold. I uh, I waited I, I, from the time I graduated from uh, Chapel Hill. I waited four years before I went to law school, and it was so that I could keep going back to Wenaki each summer. I had just grown attached to the like Doniger, the kids Doniger, Mafuda, Yoha, Brooks, Latinsky, Eric Wolf. I mean, just some great kids that that I had kind of started with in uh, bunk fourteen, fifteen, and. Um, I was just going to kind of see them out the door. So I, I literally put up law school and just kind of would work odd jobs um, just so I could keep going back to camp. It was, it was a great decision for me. Now, you said that you got to do some coaching that first year. Were you an assistant during color war? I was, yep. I was um, I was an assistant for Kyle Lawrence, and we uh, we put the hammer down on Andrew Barrow in the Buff team. Okay. Oh. We did. Uh, my my record in color war is I was four and zero as an assistant and zero and two as a leader. I lost to Bob Hoskins in '94, and I lost to the, the loudest Long Island Jew, John Stugatz Wiener, '96. <laughs> the defeat that still haunts me. But anyway, you know. Um, but that you had asked me to do a top five list, uh, the, throw one in, and I did a quick one for you, Judd. You know, the top five things that didn't keep me coming back to Wenaki <laughs> okay. were the were the pay, the pay, and the women, the time off, and and the upper fields. Because the only time you'd see me on the upper fields was during color work. So right. I was a waterfront man, a waterfront man. That's right, as George Sproul would say, a waterfront Amen. man. Now, um, you know, speaking of some of these early people you met, and obviously you had some time on the mainland and some time on the island, so you really, you know, saw that amazing 1990s cast of characters. You know, when Stu and I kind of close our eyes and think about camp, that's what, that's what we go back to, late 80s, early 90s, into the mid-90s. Who were some of those early role models for you at camp, and what did you learn from them that stuck with you over these years? Uh, you know, the first guy is Andrew Barrow. All right. Andrew Barrow, uh, you know, English guy, sailing guy. He was the one that taught me how to be a counselor. Mm. Uh, he taught me stuff that I still use to this day. Like if you want kids to listen, speak softly. <laughs> you know, if you want to quiet your bunk down at night, walk in and just stand there silently because silence at night in the dark is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he taught me how to run a sailing trip. Uh, you know, taught me you know, easier to let the reins out with your cabin than pull them back in. But he he was the guy that taught me how to how to run a bunk and how to be a counselor. He was really the first guy. Second guy was uh, was obviously Whitley, and Whitley's a lifelong friend of mine. You know, Whitley kind of helped me grow up. I mean, I, I was a 
I was a, uh, I was 19, you know, when Whitley first first had to supervise me on the waterfront, you know, making 19 year old decisions. But you know, we we still live 10 miles from each other. He still tutors my kids in math. Uh, and a funny story on the side is that my mom actually hired Whitley. My mom was a vice principal of the middle school, and after I came home, like my second or third summer. I uh, knew Whitley was looking for a new school, and my mom hired him wow. uh, at the school they were at. And and Whitley went on there to become a legendary wrestling coach, and that was where he actually finished out his uh, his career. So, um, but Whitley, man, Whitley, Whitley was a big influence in my life. Um, moving over from that, like I would say, Tim Williams, Al Samoas, Frank Guthrie, Mario, those guys taught me how to coach. I told you that I fell in love with coaching. But those dudes were great basketball coaches. Mm. And I learned a ton from those guys. Um, just watching how they ran practice. You know, and it's funny because Al Samoa's really wasn't even coaching that much. But when he got on the court, man, that dude was unbelievable. And uh, so I kind of soaked some of that up. Um, and then I'll give you one that, that, that I, at the end, at the end, there was a big influence in my life. And it was AC Bitter. And I'll tell you what AC taught me. AC taught me what it looked like to be a great dad. Mm. Because when I got over to the island, you know, Stu and Gavin were gone. And so AC would spend all day talking about how much he missed them, how much, you know, what what they were doing. And to see a six foot six, 275 pounds of Cajun be unapologetic about loving his kids on how much he cared about them. Uh, you know, after I spent those three summers with AC, man, I, I knew I wanted to be a dad and I was actually excited about it. And I knew how I was going to act because I'd kind of watched him. Wow. But I'd tell you that those were my influences at camp. That's awesome. Yeah, that's special. Did you, uh, I'll give you over under for number of seconds it would take Whitley to pin you in a wrestling match. Se- 17. What are you taking over or under? his age with battling his uh diabetic can you know with his feet the neuropathy i think i can outrun him for 17 so i want i, don't know. I want <laughs> we're in a small confined space with that low center of gravity and it's just kind of 70s tenacity <laughs> uh i'm gonna go under yeah yeah it's smart 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 bet uh, yeah i've already got that money in on uh bet mgm so don't yeah please i might be able to make him laugh which might delay the match so we'll see that's awesome and then one other follow-up question did you ever try to grow a al samoa's mustache well you know just to try to be that did you think the mustache was as key to the coaching or did you know that that was not even close to the to the fact you know well being from north carolina and being a dale earnhardt fan i respected samoa's push for him you know a lot of people up in the <laughs> they, they they didn't understand the amount of effort and grooming that went into that thing and what it takes him to that shape. So I, I, I loved that mustache. It, it made me think that he probably wanted to be a cop, but he couldn't be a cop, you know, coaching the next best thing. But he, uh, he bridged gaps there. He really made the Southern guys feel comfortable with that thing. That's true. <laughs> Oh man, I love it. Uh, that's great stuff. All right, Stu Dog, let's get into another segment. Um, it's called Winocky Trivia, JC. Five questions. We're going to stump the guest. Stu Dog's going to start off. Uh, we got to see what sort of showing you have today. You know, we've we've had we've we've run the gamut from some pretty poor showings to some absolute A plus efforts here. So, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, it's been a, it's been a minute. So if I go zero for five, it has no bearing on my love for camp. That's it. Look at it. Yeah. Well, great segue with the push broom. The first question, James: What is the home state of Al Samos? Yeah, I mean, Al's, Al's a New Hampshire guy, man. Brewster Academy national champion, like Hall of Fame coach. I, mean, I think he's a New Hampshire guy. That's it. Live free, yes. live free or die. All right, here we go. Not, not that you, you know, we're we're not confirming or denying that you spent time inside of any of these establishments, but can you name three different counselor watering holes during the 1990s? Wow. You know, the mug, uh, Jade, of course. And then uh, there was a clay, there's a place that McCoy always used to take us in Manchester, but I cannot remember the name of it. You know, I'll go with Giuseppe's Pizza Place. That was an easy one. Okay. We'll give that to you. That's all right. two, two, two for two. I could, I could probably, if you gave me a minute, I could probably name some more. Stude, was there a place, was, uh, Sweetwater? Is that a place that people talk about yeah. a lot? Yeah, Sweetwater. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it took, a, took a right on the, the main road getting off of the neck. There you go. You go to Kona too, right? With George. <laughs> There's not, 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 enough, not enough cognac in stock for you to go there as well. <laughs> Number three, James, what were the six group names of the Island Bucks during your time there at camp? Oh, wow. That's, uh, <laughs> oh, man, that, that's not going to happen. That's, uh, you know, you start naming them and maybe I can name a couple. The six group names for the Bucks? Uh, here you go. You ready? Group, but you got, uh, I mean, the, the, the first one were Colts. Oh, God. Yeah, like, oh, uh, no, I've, I've got nothing for you there. I I uh I remember that it was letters. I remember that I was in like E and I and then log cabin back, but uh you got me. I'm O for six there, buddy. <laughs> only counts as six. only counts as one though, don't worry. What were they? It was Colts, Beavers, Rangers, Marauders, Juniors, and Seniors. Yeah, that, that does ring a bell. And I remember on the mainland, you know, a few of those, like the the um, the Minnows and the Cubs. I think at the time it was Minnows, Cubs, Pioneers, Frosh, Inner Sauce, Juniors, Commandos, Raiders, and Seniors. You know what though? What, what was crazy is when I went back with my boys that they really didn't have enough kids to divide it that way as much. So that was not right. as big a thing. J like JHC when we were there were Juniors, Hurricanes, Commandos, something mm. like that. And then right. they JHC. So it was all the kids that age. So. That was uh, my, when I uh, reliving it with my kids. I, I didn't get refreshed on that info. Yeah, it, it's true. All right, here we go. Let's see if you can bounce bounce back here. Get back into the the win column. Who won best all around camper during your final summer in nineteen ninety seven? That's uh, that's Jason Doniger. Ooh, there we go. That's right. Good yeah, you could you could throw out that. You, that's right. I was gonna say you could throw out that last name and have a, a fairly good chance yeah. at that time period. Winning, yeah. No, Jason Doniger, great kid. Wow, I guess he's great. And now, finally, what are the uh, three official songs that are sung at Songfest? <laughs> well, there's the fight song. There's the alma mater, and. Oh man, uh, the funny one. Yeah, I guess the humor song, skit song, or something like that. I don't know. The novelty. The novelty. The novelty. 
Um, yeah, I, I, whatever I wrote for that one sometimes would, would get us in a little bit of hot water. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll, that was two out of three. We'll round up. We'll give you one. We'll give you. We'll give you four out of five there. A passing grade. That's I'll a pass. That. That, that's a passing grade. We're not going to hold you back. You guys threw me some softballs there. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, James, moving on. Why do you think or what are some reasons that you think Wenaki counselors form such great bonds? And what is it maybe just about the Wenaki counselor experience that brings so many guys from so many different places and backgrounds and what have you into such great concert together? Yeah, so this this is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig a little deep with you guys on this one. Um, the, the first thing I would say is that at Wanaki, you give each other the gift of being fully present. You know, when you think back to when we were, first, first of all, if you think about social media or phones, right? Like you hop on your phone and you, you look at your Facebook and you see that uh, your friend's on vacation or your friend got a dog or maybe this person's got a new job or this person got a new car. Each time you're looking at that, that information is actually taking you out of the moment. It's taking you away from where you are. I mean, social media is, is kind of a, you know, it, it makes you everywhere except where you actually are. And when, when I back about my time at Wanaki, the thing that I missed the most is that we were fully present with each other. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have distraction. I mean, other than a phone hanging on the side of the mess hall, mm-hmm. th- there was no outside distraction in the world. And so, uh, you know, your conversations, your relationships, the way, uh, you know, you were with each other, it was just real and it was intense and, and you were you were fully present. And e- even in our lives today, you know, when we're around people that, that are fully present with us, like it, it's, it's really inspiring. And I think back about camp and th- there's just a gift there where you just the reason those bonds I think are so tight is because when you're on that rock per se, or even on the mainland, you're just you're fully present and you're engrossed in the moment. And I, I think just it forms deep relationships. I, and I think that what's different about camp is that you know the material uh, like accoutrements of life are not present. And what I mean by that is that uh, everyone there just has a cubby full of clothes. And so it's it's kind of egalitarian. It's 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 intense. It's an intense seven week experience. Everybody's growing together and living together. But you are just kind of who you are. I mean, uh, when you live on that island, everyone's equal. Everyone's on the same footing. Maybe yeah. Maybe your parents are richer, or maybe some guys talk different, or maybe somebody from a different country. But at the end of the day, you are who you are. Like if you're funny, you're funny. And if you're smart, you're smart. And if you're kind, you're kind. If you're courteous, you're courteous. Or, or if you're an asshole, you're an asshole. Mm. And everything superficial from your life and everything materialistic gets stripped away at camp. It's removed. It's gone. Um, it's your reputation, your parents, your house, your clothes, what people think about you. And it's almost like you get a reset and you get dropped on that rock. And all you got is a cubby full of clothes. And it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or Christian or English or a redneck. The only thing that matters is who and what you are on that island because there's no hiding. And no one knows you from back home. And so that process of being exposed, I mean, some people never get it. They they, they might like their reputation back home. But, man, it is a powerful thing when you get to experience that because it's real 
and it's the truth. And the reason that I wanted to put my kids through that and the reason I thought it was such a great experience for me is because when that happens to you, you get to figure out who you are. Mm. And so that was a man. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's spot on. And then, you know, James, what do you, it just, that, that, that collective energy and that like collective spirit, I mean, do you, how do you relate that as far as being absent in, you know, the day-to-day as well? You know, how, how important a role do you think that plays? You know, there's, uh, you know, George always used to talk at the end of the summer about, he would give a little speech about, you know, boys, this is it. Like, uh, this group of men will never be together. We'll never share this experience again. And, uh, you know, you, you know, mourn it, but it is what it is. And, you know, each summer when you would bring everybody together, like on the rock, um, you know, it was a, it was a different, it was, it was like a soup, right? I mean, there was just different pieces to the puzzle, but again, I, I think it was that each guy was usually a long way from home. Uh, most people only knew a few people on the Island and it's, it's just this, it's just this group of guys trying to figure out who they are in the world, you know, instead of just listen, you know, you always tell my kids, don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself, but you know, you got to find your inner voice. You got to figure out who you are. And in my opinion, there's no better way to do that in camp because you get to get away from all your friends back home Mm. and you go up there and without the pressure of being back home, you get to figure out, who you are, what you are, what's important to you, what your skills are, what your talents are. And I just, I don't think parents fully understand how important that is to the development of their kids. You got to give them space and you got to give them space to figure it out. And, mm. and camps is such a wonderful environment to do it. Yeah. That's awesome. Love it. So JC, uh, you know, color war is just a huge part of the Wanaki experience. What are some of your favorite memories of Wanaki breakouts and color wars? Oh, wow. Color, I mean, there's nothing better than color war, first of all. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's the best experience at camp. But my color probably, I'm not going to say this is my proudest moment, but there was a, you might have been, I don't know if you were there for this, job, but it was the year before, uh, team handball. You know, what could possibly go wrong, right? We're going to play a sport that we don't play all year. <laughs> hey, senior team handball. I'm the uh, I'm the blue leader. Uh, John Wiener is the buff leader. Senior team, team handball, we've got the Goulds, like Danny Keating, Eric Todras. I can't remember who else was out there. Chad Latinsky, a bunch of kids. But anyway, uh, I don't know. You know, uh, Stugatz or Wiener was basically Coach K before Coach K was Coach K. I mean, he, he could just needle the refs. <laughs> and I was a little bit more laid back, a little bit, you know, a little bit more deferential. But in, it was a team handball game where we started, we were winning and we were losing. And, you know, Stugatz was just kind of doing his thing, um, giving the refs the business. And I lost my mind. <laughs> On, uh, on Frank Guthrie <laughs> to the point that I got thrown out, you know, and, and it was, I, I probably pulled like an Antonio Brown, you know, I, you know, you, when you, it's one thing to quit, but you really quit when you take your shirt off, right? <laughs> you know, I didn't just quit. I took my shirt off. That's, I, I think Guthrie threw me out. I had to sit out an afternoon session 
And uh, I remember Al Samoz kind of pulled me in the office after the, the incident saying, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I knew Wiener was going to kind of, you know, might lose his cool, but I, was, you know, had higher hopes for you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think, you know, Color War was, it was, it was brilliant because it made you, it made you learn to perform under the highest pressure, and and deal with the consequences and move on. And um, I loved it. I, I, I learned so many leadership things, uh, both as an assistant and as a leader in Color War. And uh, I was glad my kids got to experience it as well. It was brilliant. Yeah. You know, one of the things with Colonel Joe and I have talked about this in the past, with it being at the very end of camp. So there's already this added kind of intensity knowing that the days are, are few. And yeah. you're heading back to reality. I'm telling you know, from a kid's perspective. And besides, obviously, it is the big event. And you want to win, but you're also, you know, it's under this idea that in three, two, maybe four days from now, this is all over and we're going to go out here and compete as well. And just divide it, you know, trying to make it, spending all that time to try to make it as even as possible so Mm -hmm. that really is effort and kind of performance under pressure that makes the difference. It's just... It's I, I, the kids are learning so many lessons there that they don't even realize um, about having to perform under pressure. And I remember I got a video from um, I, my, my son Rob, who's played you know high school sports now for four years, will tell you that the most nervous he's ever been was taking a PK his first year on the island, like in All Star Soccer. Uh-huh. At the, at, and he said that's the most pressure he ever felt in an athletic event. That's amazing. And so, to be able to do that away from your parents and so that whether you win or lose whether you know you're a goat or the hero you got to deal with it that's that's when some big time growing up goes yeah happens and how about the fact that we're 26 and 28 years removed from your mainland and island lead leadership role and you can tell me who you went against what color you were whether you won whether you lost who your assistants were what the key games were it's it's, it's incredible how it sticks with you i mean it's Nothing it matters. It, it still matters. And it's still, you know, when you lose, it still stings all these years later and you wish you would have done some things differently. But uh, that's when you know you've had a real experience when you don't even have to try to recall it. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really know about that. JC as a two time winner, but I, you know, I, I hear you. Um, all right. So Fair enough. Fair enough. we're going to go with some rapid fire questions in this next segment. Stu dog, can you confirm that uh, Jimbo here has not seen Ahead of time, any of these questions? The message is authentic. All right. So these are all going to be uh, Wenaki-related questions. Let's start off with Stu Dog asking the first one. All right, number one. James, what was your favorite meal at camp? Spaghetti. But I ate it so much that after about six summers at camp, I couldn't eat it for about 10 years. But it was spaghetti. Love it. With the meatballs, no meatballs? Just the meat sauce. The meat sauce, you know, is a big bowl of pasta. You can get what you wanted. Okay. Yeah, I threw it a nice meal. I, I, I don't know why, but it's the one thing that I remember. We're like, we ate a lot of spaghetti. <laughs> um, all right. Question number two. What was the location of the best trip that Wenaki campers took that you went on? Uh, hard to beat Montreal. Mm. But uh, we, did a, uh, we did a main sailing trip. I'll tell you the best trip at camp. The best trip at camp, though, was the 
the sailing trip that uh, Andrew Barrow and I would take, the overnight sailing trip that we would take on the Pearson yachts. Mm, yep. Where we sail to Wolfboro. I think we would sail over to a camp across the broads and uh, spend the night and camp out like real camp. Like the only night that would knock your kids would actually sleep like in a sleeping bag out on a boat or in a lean-to. That was a good trip because I taught them how always to cook over an open fire. And kids really got into that. They they they, they enjoyed that year to year. That was the best trip. Yeah. Then number three, uh, with your job title there at camp and your location, this might be an easy one. What was your favorite view at Winalki? Uh, you know, favorite view at Winalki was it happened at some point in the first summer. Um, but you know, when you uh, you know, I would you would kind of paddle out in a canoe or, or a boat, and like you were headed over to the. Um, headed over to the island, but if you kind of bared to the right a little bit and kind of went around and you could kind of see around the corner of the island, that mountain would almost seem like it was coming out of the lake as you looked over at Melbourne Village. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that, that to me, the, the, that's the first time I'd ever really been uh, at a lake where the mountains kind of felt like it rose up and like Castle in the Clouds was up there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my favorite view. In fact, I would actually, when I was on the island, I would actually walk over to where the old rifle range was and, and kind of check it out. Yeah. Yep. That's that's a, that's a great one. All right, here's one for you. What song always reminds you of Winaki whenever you hear it? Oh man, it's uh it's a song from Les Mis. It was our fight song uh, <laughs> when I was the blue leader on the island. It was Do You Hear the People Sing singing the songs of angry men? It's the music of a camper who will not be beat again. <laughs> but uh, Andrew Barrow helped me write that for a six pack of beer. <laughs> and uh it was a winner <laughs> but it. do you hear the people sing from les mis i know that's I know that's probably not what you thought you were going to get but that's it <laughs> james what was your favorite boat to drive in camp that would be <laughs> wow okay here you go that would be the putt putt boat that i would steal my second summer and drive over to melbourne village <laughs> to hang out with the dock girl and uh whitley told me that i could not take the boat and then he gave me a flashlight and said you cannot take the boat <laughs> I was say, that's a pretty nice trip for a pot fight across that Marlboro bay there you know at, at the age of 20 you know you got to be all in but you're willing yeah. to. <laughs> that's yeah, right especially navigating you know kind of getting around the island over there you know it's uh you kind of had to have a sense of it could be kind of dark on the lake sometimes. Yeah, something tells me a, a two-man canoe and one paddle, or even no paddle, you still would have made it over there. <laughs> but yeah, it was um, it was bus. But uh, I'm trying to think, but uh, we we had we had a ski antique my last year. That was pretty fun. Mm. Yeah, but I, I drove everything. I drove the barge. I drove the drove the cruiser. I, I got to I got to experience it all. And then final question, James. Uh, we always end with. What was your favorite, or what is your favorite color, buff or blue? It's uh, even though I was a two-time loser as a leader, it's blue. It's blue. I never really understood buff. Never really got into buff. Don't really like it now. I hear to you. Be honest, you're, yeah, it's blue. You're, you're in good company with that. <laughs> so James, you know, you stated about starting on the mainland. What was it like to move over to the island? And why do you think, you know, Island Pride, you know, from Mario Watson has been such a meaningful camper counselor experience 
uh, over the past 40 years or so. So, you know, when I first got to camp, I was 19. I, I wasn't ready to be an island counselor. Like, there's a, there's some swagger that goes with that. Um, so the main the main one was great for me. Like, I, I needed to I needed to get some confidence. I needed to figure some things out. Um, and so, but the move was so I was three years on the mainland. Then I moved over to the island in '95. Um, it was great for me because I got to stay with the group of kids that I kind of started with: mm. uh, Brooks, Doniger, Mafuda those um krieger and it uh it, it allowed me to stay with those guys even though i wasn't always in their cabin but you know while the mainland was great those three summers on the island i that those those are etched deeper in my soul than any other um and when i went back to camp i was really excited to see the mainland and I, I was excited to show them, you know, I was in bunk 14, 15. I was in, you know, I was a sailing counselor. But when I rode the cruiser over to the, the island, I miss, when I rode the cruiser over to the island, I got chills. Mm. When I, when I, like, I think I saw Judd, right, when I first showed back up. And um, I think you were lifting weights, Judd. But that's uh, <laughs> those island summers, those are the ones. Those are the ones that stick with you. And I think Wanaki's always had that figured out because that's how you end. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about your own, your own sons and and Island Pride in, you know, that, I mean, that must be, we'll get to that a little bit later. It's just got to be so cool for you to, to, to get to see that through their eyes as well. But let's, let's get to that before then, JC, there have been, you know, some absolute characters at camp. And I think back to the nineties, that was, you know, arguably one of the heydays what are some of your funniest memories at camp? Oh, wow. Uh, well, first of all, the character, you know, you got Frank Guthrie, naked man. You got everything that John Hotbody Miller ever said. Uh, <laughs> I thought in a softball tournament one time by bunting like 14 times. <laughs> um, you got Scotty D. Douglas, you know, hitting a home run drunk as a skunk in like a parent counselor softball game. <laughs> uh, I remember Eric Targan um, and then going on an x lax diet for about a week at camp. You had John Wiener one summer trying to convince us all that we could lose weight by power walking. Um, uh, Heath Hooper and, and Wiener and I just sitting around the table um talking about trying to name as many professional wrestlers as we could, or, 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 you know, arguing about uh, who would win in a fight between a polar bear or a Bengal tiger. And some of that stuff actually ended up, you know, on Stu Gotts's radio show. It was, it was kind of interesting. Uh, Eric McCoy, anything he, he let us on. Um, but the, uh, the craziest thing I ever said about camp <laughs> that happened at camp. And you can, you can, you can, you can decide whether you want to keep this one or not. Uh, <laughs> but color war 94. I'm the blue team leader. And about day three or four, we are, we are, we are losing and it's not going well. We just, you know how it is on the mainland. You can just get some tough draws and you know, you, you have groups that you never win anything, but that summer, um, that summer, Maddie Sobel had opened a petting zoo on the mainland. 
And in that petting zoo, you can stop me at any point if you want. In that petting zoo, there was a goat that had the biggest set of balls any of us had ever seen. And I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to say anything happened. But at one point during color war, that goat's balls got painted blue. (laughs) I don't know if you know, goats do not want their balls painted. (laughs) And they are strong and they will put up a fight. And I have no idea who did it. But I will tell you that (laughs) they... it, it didn't go well because the goat tried to, to, to clean himself and he might've gotten sick from the paint and it was just a big disaster and the blue team stopped getting blown out. But there was, there was a lot, a lot of heat for a few days about how the goat's balls had been painted blue in the middle of color war. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Crying. Yeah. <laughs> Did that did that reverse the was it like the rally monkey? Did it reverse the fortunes at all or no? That that was the idea. That was the idea, but it just like everything we tried during that color war, it it didn't work. <laughs> so I will leave it at that, and I'd like to apologize to Maddie Sobel, uh, John Sobel, and Bart Sobel uh, for if anyone on the blue team uh, offended them that year at the petting zoo. What about the goat? Do you want to apologize to the goat? <laughs> <laughs> we probably should. <laughs> All right. But that's it. That was it. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of other stories, but that that one sticks out above most of them. Oh man, I love it. Uh, yeah, it was a great story. But uh, moving on here, on a, on a totally different 180. James, what's it like to have sent you two amazing boys, Rob and Adam, to Anaki, and how did it feel to experience Anaki through their eyes? You know, like you said, 25 summers later. Well, I mean, it was amazing, right? Because I got to do it all over again. I got to go back up and visit. And, uh, you know, the first thing I'll say, and the one thing I never appreciated as, as a counselor, is how hard it is to send your camp, kids to camp. I mean, it's tough. I mean, you know, I, I got a couple of boys. Like, we, we do a lot of stuff together. And to lose those guys for seven weeks, like, you know, we live at the beach. We live on the Outer Banks. Mm. And, you know, people around here thought I was crazy mm-hmm. sending my kids to camp in New Hampshire because that's not something that culturally happens right. in the South. I mean, right. kids don't go away for the summer in the South. And I think, you know, and if, if you think about the origins of summer camp, you know, kids in the North would go away all summer because they were trying to escape the heat of the city. But kids in the South were expected to work on the farm and work and help the family. And so this idea of sending your kids somewhere is not something that's understood, appreciated in the South. So, um, but the, you know, it it was, it's probably the best parenting decision I've ever made. Um, It it gave me, it, it gave my kids a bunch of gifts. Like number one, um, it let my kids, first of all, they got to know what it feels like to be different, right? Mm. Because, you know, financially, like, we're very successful here, but you send your kids to Jewish summer camp, and all of a sudden, they're the poorest kids on the rock, right? So, And all of a sudden, they talk funny, and all of a sudden, everybody's making fun of them. And all of you know, they find themselves in a different world. So I wanted them, I wanted them to understand what it felt like to be different, Okay, and and they got that in a really wholesome way, and, and they ended up making great friends at camp. 
But the second thing was, is I wanted to give my kids the gift of what it was like, as I said earlier, of being present, right? Because there's no phones on the island. You know, Dan would try to take those away, which is great. And those kids finally got to know what it was like to be fully present with their friends, to play sports and to laugh and to be with each other and to do the senior campfires. They got that. And, and, and through that process, it gave them the gift of they got to learn who they were. They got to listen kind of to who their inner voice. And, you know, they got to go to a place where no one knew who they were. No one knew what they were about. Nobody knew their parents. Nobody knew where they came from. And so at the end of the day, whatever they were on the rock or at camp, is it, you know, they, they, they got to listen to that. They got to find their own voice. And um, it was easy for me to do, though, because I knew I had Whitley up there. And Whitley had helped me when I was a young guy. And I knew Whitley would look out for him. I knew he would make sure they were okay. And I knew he would help them kind of find their voice and their stride. And um, my wife and I, Sydney, would always tell our friends that they all had it all backwards, that we felt like it was our job for 45 weeks to prepare our kids to go to Wanaki. Mm. And th- my kids would tell you that the first couple summers were not easy. Like the first couple summers they did on the mainland, like they were fish out of water. But by the time they hit that first summer on the island, second summer on the island, it was on. Mm. You know, hockey kids for life. And I've never made a better parenting decision. And I'll just say that it it gave my kids a lot of confidence. It helped them grow up and it helped them figure out who they were. And I don't know how you do that unless you send them off where they can figure it out. Hmm. Yeah. And as, uh, you know, we want, we've watched Stu over the, over the years growing up with him, it doesn't help to have, uh, doesn't hurt to have some unbelievable non-Jewish genes dominating, you know, Jew sports at Wenaki. Yeah. I mean, that was something AC told me one day on the dock. He said, listen, he said, you know, you look at Stu there. He said, if you ever have boys of your own and you want to give them athletic confidence, <laughs> send them to Jewish sports camp. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's very true. No, I, I kid that. Listen, listen. It's uh, at sports is kind of what binds the camp, and 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 we talk about color war, and and sports is what you know the camp was founded on, but that that that, that ain't what's really happening there. What's really happening there is kids are growing up, mm-hmm. kids are figuring out who they are, kids are getting all the accoutrements of life stripped away. And they're learning to listen to their inner voice and they're learning to figure out who they want to be. That's what happened. You know, James, you mentioned earlier about your two boys sending them up there so they can find out that they're different. But, you know, on the flip side of that is true just as much. They get to go up there and leave, you know, North Carolina and see that there's different people up here as well. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, like, you look at Rob, Rob, my oldest, his friends, right? Jacobo was from Spain, Barcelona. Silverman mm-hmm. uh, was from Manhattan. Rutsky, I think, was right outside the city. Like, like, his boys were from all over. And what you learn is that no matter where you're from, you're all dealing with the same stuff. Right. 
and that there's so many more similarities than there are really differences. And, and they, yeah, that, that was a huge lesson for them. And I think it's kind of a little secret that my two boys know, like they've been off and that they see that there's the, the other thing too, is that you get really uh, like when you're a kid in adolescence, you feel a lot of pressure, you know, a lot of peer pressure with all your friends. But when you get to go away and get completely away from your friends back home, you learn that really all the stuff you've been worrying about back home, isn't that important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You go somewhere else and you see that everybody else is worried about that stuff too. And it gives you this perspective on life that just can't get unless you get away. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Well said, JC. Well said. And um, we have a segment right now. It's called Winocky Recollections. We have asked three mystery alumni, former counselors, or even campers uh, to write and share some thoughts about you. So we're going to go ahead, and I'm going to start with the first one right now. So here goes our first recollection. There are so many ways to spend a summer at Wanaki. For some, it's all about the sports on the upper fields. For others, it's about life in the dome. For the truly enlightened, however, life centers on the waterfront. Where else could you work for Whitley, jump in when it all became a bit too warm, and bask in the friendships formed over a summer's worth of rock hunting in the whaler? The pinnacle of that enlightenment, however, lay in sailing. As Ratty says in The Wind in the Willows, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, half so much worth doing as simply messing about in boats. And we did it all summer and got paid a bit for doing it. If you were really lucky, you got to do it with people you would remember for the rest of your life. That was my privilege when I arrived back at camp in the summer of 1992 to meet the Wanaki legend that is James Cummings. His dry humor, almost British in its rarity, that deadpan delivery of a killer line which had me chuckling for hours, and that trademark drawl all remained with me for long after his defection to the island. His laconic understatement put the latest disaster into perspective, restoring the senses of humor and proportion in those around him. I loved his company on those sailing trips to Melvin Village as we dissuaded boys from standing on the pipe that rang the bell in the gas store by threatening them with the fictional owner who wore barbed wire next to the skin and ate broken bottles and babies for breakfast. James could have come up with a line as good as that, but I had to plagiarize P.J. Wodehouse. Then there were the Pearson trips, camping out on an island in the broads, flank steaks inexpertly cooked over an open fire, attempting to bring raccoons down from the trees and all with James's company and sense of fun. He could conjure fun out of the most improbable of situations and turn a dull evening into pure entertainment. While much of value is learned through the coaching, the really important lessons are found in the bunk. This is where campers grow up, build their relationships, and learn to live with others. Childhood and adolescence is a time of exploration, of development, and a time to make mistakes. You need a good guide, one who won't judge and who sees what is really important. One who can make you laugh, but teach through that humor. James is all of that. He cared, was kind to those who were finding life difficult, and above all, encouraged and supported his boys. He was their champion and became a role model to those lucky enough to have him as their counselor. His strong sense of what was right and what was important will have left its mark on those boys he helped to grow up. He was their mentor and guide, and they learned respect, not only of James himself, but of what he stood for. 
He never took things too seriously, was irreverent, scorned the ridiculous, but never, ever neglected the important. That he did take seriously, and he left the boys in no doubt as to where a moral compass should point. Kindness, time, and support were all given generously and without fuss. There were many whose lives he has affected for the better as a result. It is in his nature that he would downplay this, and I can hear a sarcastic riposte building up as you read this out, but that is a reflection of his modesty and dislike of what he would wrongly see as hyperbole. He can suffer a bit longer. I've not finished yet. I last saw James on a visit to camp in 2015. We were both rather older by this time. James hadn't changed, though, the same humor, the ability to hide the important behind a quick wit. Two things struck me. The depth of his love for Wenaki and what it did for the campers, and also his love for in pride in his sons. He knew what Wenaki could do for young men, and he wanted them to experience that, as indeed they did. It was all understated, but those who knew James understood. I have never been lucky enough to meet his two boys, but from what I have heard, they are clearly impressive young men, and like those campers of the 90s, fortunate to have had James's guidance and care. Bart kindly lent us his boat. I tried to leap on board as I had as a 20-year-old. It didn't work. Cummings was kind enough not to comment, at least out loud. The years rolled back, and a whaler trip out onto the lake with Whitley, Cummings, and some smuggled refreshments reminded me of what friendship is about. Wenaki has been the richer for his presence. He makes things better for people and enriches their lives. And that's the best that can be said of anyone. JC, this was written by former Wenaki Mainland Waterfront Counselor from 1987 to 1997, an all-around great guy, the always erudite and urbane Andrew Barrow. Oh wow! And then and, and Judd, uh, you know, he was the trailblazer on the on the the story on the campfire. I know you took it to another level, but man, that that, that uh, great words. Thank you, Andrew Barrow. You uh, you taught me a lot. You taught me a lot at a point in my life when I needed to learn it, and I really really appreciate you. All right, the second one <clears throat> to James Cummings. One summer we flew to camp, and as we always arrived on Father's Day, I was there in the middle of the mainland campus greeting all the returning counselors. Since it was pre-camp, we ate dinner on the mainland, and Bart called me in his office and told me at 6 a.m. Monday morning, all waterfront personnel were going to have to pass a WSI course to work on the waterfront. I think the, re I think the reason was because camp was getting accredited. Needless to say, I was in my upper middle ages and not in great shape, especially for swimming. Everyone at camp already knew that I didn't like the cold water. After breakfast, about 8 a.m. that Monday morning, we started swimming laps, and we swam laps, and laps, and laps. We were swimming strokes that you used to help out a swimmer in distress. We were paired up, and that's when I got to meet and become friends with James Cummings. You see, since we were the two biggest waterfront counselors, the instructor decided to pair us together. <laughs> the last thing we had to do to pass the WSI course was to do a savior partner from drowning drill. Of course, the young James Cummings had no trouble saving me, and he passed with flying colors. Now it was my turn to save James. No need to tell you that I was already exhausted. 
And so I swam out to James and got him in a cross chest carry and started swimming that log of a human being in. After about eight strokes, well, probably four, I said to James, hey boy, either you kick and help me out here or I'm going to drown both our asses. <laughs> yes, sir, he said, and I can still hear the instructor yelling, coming, stop kicking, coming, stop kicking. Thank you, James, for not listening to him. James, once I found out you were coming to the island, I knew whatever activity you were put into that I was not going to have to worry about that activity. You always had safety in mind for the campers as well as the counselors. To me personally, I could always count on you to just do your job. Thanks, James, for all that you did for the success of the island waterfront. And my ass is still out of shape. Your true Southern friend, IP, AC Better. <laughs> I think, I, well, first of all, thank you, AC. Uh, that is a that's a that's a story that I almost told. Um, I, I, what I remember your dad telling me was, "Get busy, get busy kicking, or you go get busy drowning." <laughs> and, we stole uh, a line from Shawshank. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we uh, it's uh, that was that was quite, yeah that was quite the quite the interview. We laughed about that for a long time. And uh, AC was a, a you know I've said earlier. Uh, AC taught me what it looked like to be a dad, man. He taught me how to unapologetically love your kids. And I'm forever thankful for that. I love it. All right, here we go, JC. Third one starts off with a top five in your honor. All right, number one, if you're not ready for the truth, best not ask James. Number two, Nobody covered the 40 feet between three-point lines better in an inner counselor game than JC. The UNC counselor beatdown of the IU counselors was one and done for a reason, as Tim Williams is still wanted by the Moultonboro Neck Road Police Department for assault and battery. Number three, JC may have throttled me in color war my final year, but my coordination of 100-plus Jewish kids belting out a country music rendition of Alan Jackson's Way Down Yonder by Camp Wanaki remains the greater feat 25 years later. Number four, JC proved in year one at Wanaki he's an artist. The goat on Maddie's farm can attest. <laughs> you may be busted there, buddy. Number five, JC's transition from the mainland to the rock after a year was my first lesson in working smarter rather than harder. Along these lines, JC and I both started out our journey at Wenaki on the mainland, and after a year, JC made the move to the island. Every summer, when I'd see him on off-shift nights, he'd say, you gotta make the move. Although I have no regrets about my time on the mainland, I'll never forget my last summer, which was my one and only on the rock. JC, was just one of the amazing cast of counselors' characters. Guthrie, McCoy, The Tool Shed, Weena Dog, George, Mario, Ace, the list goes on. My bunk was loaded with personalities. Yohai, Brooks, Mafuda, Doniger, Kravitz, Fisher, Holtzman, Mendel Satan, Droopy, and forgive me if I've left anyone out. Admittedly, until that last summer, I admit I didn't understand exactly what made the two camps so completely different from campers to staff. There was that it factor that you just felt all the time. That first night at camp, when all the campers went to the diner, the mess hall, I finally got it. There was the normal buzz of getting a large group of people assembled in a small area, but then it starts. IP, IP, 
IP. The energy was unmistakable. The spirit entered my body. And then there's Jimmy freaking Cummings looking at me with a shit-eating grin, shaking his head saying, I told you so, without ever saying a word. I'm so glad I listened to JC at least once and came to experience The Rock. It's an experience that is so hard to explain to those who have never been. Yet for us who have it, it has made us forever bonded, inseparable. I'm fortunate I still get to reconnect every year or two with JC down here in Carolina and relive those glory days and make other people laugh when we weave the tales about our own reality show of meatballs back in the early mid-90s. Hard to believe it all happened, but oh so glad it did. Much love to JC and everyone who made it possible. This recollection was written by former Wanaki Mainland and Island counselor from 1991 to 1995 and fellow Tar Heel, Scott Douglas. Uh, Scotty D. Yeah, I still do. A, I do an annual golf trip with Scott Douglas now, man. With uh, and we, uh, we never, never, never fails that we tell a lot of camp stories. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks, Scott. I appreciate it, man. We we had a great time. We had a great time. That's awesome. Well, James, I'll I'll uh, wrap up with our final question. Uh, what has the Wenaki community and all your relationships with former campers and counselors meant to you over all of these years? You know, like, uh, you know, I, I guess it's kind of like Scott just said, and, and, um, and, you know, if you know, you know, if you know, you know, um, and if you don't, uh, you know, I hate it for you, but your life just wasn't as good as ours were. Uh, you know, I, st- I still text with uh, Andy Latinsky, man. You know, he was a camper of mine, and he's into politics. And I, I text with him. And I'm, I'm still friends with Bradham. I, I saw Bradham last year. We got together for a beach week. Scott Douglas and I do a, a golf trip. Um, actually, trying to plan a, a trip right now with uh, with Weiner Douglas, uh, the Gooch, Heath Hooper, and uh, McCoy, and some other guys. I, you know, I ran into Barrow. He said that, and. Um, and it means the world when I see those guys. I, uh, you know, the stories uh, flow real easily, um, but every one of us, without question, would agree that Wenaki was the most fun we ever had in our life. Mm. And uh, you know, I don't want to get out of this without saying that I, I really want to thank Bart and John for running a great camp. Um, obviously, I want to thank Bart for hiring me, but I want to I want to thank him for sticking with me. Even when I would roll in at like six thirty in the morning every day one summer, uh, Camp Wenaki was is the most fun I ever had, and um, I, I say that unapologetically. It was amazing, and I just feel so blessed and lucky. Just a random stroke of luck that that it ended up being a part of my life, and that I was able to share it with my kids. And uh, you know, I appreciate you guys having me on tonight. But you know, those of us who know know and there's just really not much else to say mm-hmm. if you know you know mm-hmm. Studog, i'll throw it to you for final thoughts well james you know thank you for uh coming on doing the podcast here and uh i can't imagine you know like we've said so much tonight the experience of uh being a, a young man there and being a counselor and finding yourself up there years and years later uh with your two boys and for recollecting on a time period there at camp, as Judd said earlier, the, the early 90s that are very special to he and I. And it was great to hear some of the names and the stories tonight. Thank you. 
I agree. It's great, man. I appreciate you guys doing this podcast. I listen to every episode and you guys are doing, you're, you're doing the Lord's work here. I appreciate it. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to Wenaki under new leadership, looking forward to watching it grow and I'm uh, excited to see what the future holds. But, uh, you know, to those of us that have been blessed to be there, it, uh, it's just special. And, uh, you know, this podcast does a great job of letting us you know, talk about this, this, these really intense, amazing moments we were lucky to have in our lives. All right. Great final thoughts uh, from a great guest, James. So, so awesome to have you on and reconnect after all these years and pick up like, uh, you know, we just, we never left off. Uh, it's amazing that it's been this long and I was so happy I got to see, you know, a lot of you and your own boys and, Get to follow them now. So give uh, Whitley a big hug from everybody. Uh, thank, thanks again for coming on. I will keep all of my Davidson goats for at least six hours away from you. And let, I'll sign off um, with hold the fort for we are coming. Loyal sons of Winnocky, side by side, we battle onward on to victory. In the words of former Winnocky camp doctor, Dr. Dre, until the next episode. IP, MP, C-dubs, hold the fort.